0: Um, and with that, I want to jump into this morning. I want to kind of start with a little bit of a story, and then and then bridge into our text in Philippians. But when Tamara and I got married, we got married in 2000, and we were in Whittier, so in Southern California. I was in grad school. Uh, Tamra was uh, had come down to help with a college group that was going on at a church I was working at. That's where we met and and got married. And one of the things that was interesting is she married into this vision that we were going to plant a church, that I had this calling. And so it was an interesting thing saying, I got to do this. I don't know if it'll work, but, but I got to do this thing. And is that cool if, if, if that's a part of our vision? And so her approach was I'd always prayed that God would give me a husband that was ministry-minded and, and totally, I'm up for the adventure. But it was a couple months into being married that I kind of asked her to pray this prayer I said, would you kind of think it through on your own and decide how far you're willing for me to go in ministry? And, and Tamara was kind of like, what do you mean? And I said, well, the reality is I, I, I'm only going to be able to, in a healthy way, go as far as you're willing to let me go in ministry. Um, and if you guys know Tamara, she's 60% of what makes up the good in me, right? Um, and so... That's really the truth. The part that, that she's willing to support and allow me to go forward or to go with me in that is really the extent to which I can go or I have permission to go. Does that make sense? To go beyond that all of a sudden takes this partnership and creates tension in it. And so I kind of asked her, I said, I'm really only going to go as far as, as you'll be willing to let me go and I, I really want you to think through what does that look like in your mind and what are you willing to to do that way and that that would be a prayer of yours that you'd have with God that, that you'd kind of have that conversation and so she did and uh and I if you know me I also I, I always ask weird things of people that in my mind make a ton of sense but um Tamara's incredibly gracious and so she entertained that conversation and prayed about it and And uh, I don't know that she ever came to me with a a picture of how far she'd be willing to let me go in ministry. Like it wasn't an external thing with regard to success or with regard to time or energy. What she came back to me with was three words. She basically came back and said, I've got these three words, that's what... Um, I'm willing to pray for you to become in ministry. And those three words were wisdom, love, well, I guess it's not three words, two words in a, in a, in a phrase. Uh, wisdom, love, and fear of God. Those were her words. So wisdom, love, and fear of God. So she basically said, this is what I'll allow. This is what I'll pray. This is what I'll, I'll back. This is what I'll support. Um, wisdom, love, and fear of God and uh fast forward a number of years, I was home for a week kind of um it's a it's a long story that's incredibly private and humorous i'll tell you if you come ask me not in a public setting, but I was kind of on bed rest for a week um, at our house a number of years back, and was was laid up and not supposed to be moving around and my finger this is this is strange, but I can't type with my, my, my wedding ring on. Like my, that finger doesn't work when there's a ring on it. You know what I'm talking about? This is really hard because everything else is moving and this finger just kind of shuts off when my wedding ring's on it. So when I come home, I, I take my keys, my wallet, and my wedding ring, and I put it all in a pile, usually with a pen, and it kind of stays there. Well, this week that I was laid up, I had the pile kind of by the trash can. And one of my daughters was at that stage where they'd learned about trash cans. You, it's a really fun activity. You go take things and you put it in, in here and then sooner or later it goes, goes somewhere else. just goes away. And it's a really fun game. And so at the end of this week, when I came back to my pile of keys and pen and everything else, uh, my wedding ring was gone. And it had been gone long enough that it wasn't like we could go tear through the trash or anything like that. And it was, it was a, a white gold, whatever carrot, white gold ring. And I'd had this vision of someday melting that ring down and creating jewelry for my daughters, like keepsake memories. And so it was kind of like, oh, no, like I really, I really had some plans for that. It was sentimental. And uh, so I kind of was trying to figure out what to do, and it wasn't but a... A little while later, we were doing, just like this Israel trip, we were doing one of those through Kilns College, and it was a Reformation history trip. And we were in Wittenberg, which is uh, where Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the church door, the castle door in Wittenberg in the year 1517, which kicked off. Uh, That's really when you trace the Reformation back to is that day. And we were actually in Wittenberg on October 31st, uh, which was All Hallows' Eve, um, uh, Halloween, which pre- precedes All Saints' Days. And that's when Luther nailed this on, on the church door because the next day they were going to bring out all these relics. And so he was kind of challenging that. So we were there literally on Reformation, Reformation Day. And so they had a Renaissance Fair, and it was really cool to be in this small East German town that has all this history and this, this kind of castle at the center, church castle at the center of the city, and have a renaissance fair there that wasn't like a fake U.S. renaissance fair. This was like an old world German renaissance fair with brats and sauerkraut and all sorts of crazy stuff and gypsies. And, and it was really cold is what I remember. Um, but I was walking through and there was a jewelry table with all this silver jewelry and I found this ring for, for $10. And I was just, I was like, no way. Like it fits, it's comfortable. I kind of think it looks cool. Uh, and even if it doesn't look cool to me, cause I love history, it was like, it couldn't get any better. Like 14 karat gold has got nothing on $10 bought at a Renaissance fair in Wittenberg, Germany ring. Does that make sense? So I got this ring and came home and like, hey, Tamara, I found a replacement ring. And, and she actually took the ring into Saxon's jewelry. Uh, and and uh, Bruce Plummer had him engrave in my ring uh, the phrase wisdom, love, and fear of God. It's on the inside of my ring in uh, cursive-ish. Uh, so that's inside my ring. So... Fast forward again, I'm with my daughter, Mary Joy. I didn't know she was going to be in here, Um, so just pretend she's not sitting right there when I tell the story. But so I was with my daughter, my 13-year-old, who just turned 13 and a half on Friday, because half birthdays should be celebrated. Uh, And she turned 13 and a half, but it was uh, about a month and a half ago or so. We were driving. Uh, I love to drive my kids one-on-one, go to Barnes & Noble kind of have this theory that someday maybe Barnes & Noble will close or they'll close the Bend store of Barnes & Noble. And so we take our kids there every chance we get because I want my kids to have this memory, this childhood memory of of growing up around books in a bookstore. So you can pop into Barnes & Noble almost any time and you might find the Weitzma's literally for five minutes just walking in and killing time and then and then leaving. But so we, whenever we run errands, we kind of go through Barnes and Noble as well. But we're driving past Pilot Butte, and I asked Mary Joy, I said, Mary Joy, if you were to pick three words that describe what your dad is trying to teach you, or you think that I really value in life, and, and that you would kind of boil down or distill down, what, what would you say? And so Mary Joy says, Wisdom. And she says, Love. And then she said, education. And I, I kind of thought, wow, that's really interesting. I, and So I look at her and I say, you know, education is the same as wisdom. That's it's, it's kind of a redundancy. So what else would you pick? And she goes, that you follow God first in everything. And I took my ring off and I handed it to her and I said, read, read on the inside of that ring. And she reads it and she kind of like drops her jaw and looks at me and she goes, no way. Because it says, wisdom, love, fear of God. And it was just the weirdest, strangest moment for me to feel like my wife had prayed some kind of virtues into me that somehow maybe my daughter was seeing or or catching and that she could even see that and make that connection. Um, It's also a part of another strange thing that seems to be happening for me, which is my sense of self as a father is beginning to blur very strongly with my sense of myself as a pastor. Um, and that's a, that's a new thing for me. The way I see Antioch, the way I, I think through what, it's, what it would look, look like to teach or, or to try and birth things in this church feels very, very similar to kind of the heart that I have uh, for my family and for my kids. And so I don't really know how to manage that. It's, it's not as much of a teaching or motivational speaker or persuasion kind of thing anymore for me. It's really becoming more of this passion thing of saying how, how do we as this family um, grow up into these virtues or this understanding of God. And so this passage in Philippians, we're in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Philippians in this series we're doing, kind of was interesting for me because it's a hallmark chapter, there's probably 500 sermons you could do out of it, but all I kept feeling was that same, that same sense that Paul here is expressing a, a, an emotion for this church that I'm slowly beginning to understand myself. And so let me just pick out the parts where you see this in Paul, and then we can maybe look at the message he was trying to give. But Paul, in chapter three, says this. Chapter three, verse 17, he says, join together and following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have... Um, have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now I tell you again, even with tears, many, he's sad, um, he's distraught by this, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. If you're not for Christ, you're against Christ. If you don't understand the cross, then somehow you're you're against the message of the cross. Jesus didn't leave any room for kind of this neutral ground. It's like, if you're not for me, you're against me, said Jesus. And Paul's echoing this, and he's grieved by this to the point of tears. That, That the cross is at the center of our faith. It's where we find our identity. It's where we're reborn to become sons and daughters of God, which is gonna kick off the whole idea of adoption and living into this kingdom of God, where God reigns, and we as subjects or citizens of that kingdom, which is what he says a little bit further down here, we get to experience life completely different, the way it was supposed to be, um, that we can shine like stars. And so he's saying, man, I'm telling you again, I've told you before, I'm telling you again, even with tears, my emotion for this runs so deep. And he continues in chapter 4, after he would kind of talked about doctrine, he says this therefore statement, meaning off of all, of all of this stuff that I've been teaching you about the resurrection and identifying with Jesus and the fact that we have this hope, that someday we're going to be transformed into the glorious body of Christ, this resurrection body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, you I exult in you. When I think of you, I, I get excited, and you can see the glow on my face. And not only that, but you're my crown. You're what I take pride in. When I go places, I pull out my iPhone and and I show them pictures of you, Philippi. Like, you're my crown. You're you're, you're like my, my, my pride. Like, I don't care about my golf score. I care about you, Philippi this church family, this this group that together are slowly growing more and more united in Christ and manifesting the virtues of the kingdom. And and you're my family. And when I'm apart from you, I I think of you with joy and I think of you literally as my proud, my my crown, my, my like achievement that I somehow had planted and birthed and nurtured this church. Do you, do you see that in Paul? Paul is, is just intimately tied up with the well-being of this church, of these people. And so he tells them, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. It's a military term, stand firm. The Romans were known for standing their ground never being able to be pushed back There's, they just would advance and advance and they had sandals which laced all the way up gave them a better foundation uh, with which to fight on rocky ground their armor was the best their swords were the best their training was the best and they were known for for always being able to stand firm and Paul talking to this church at Philippi, uh, Philippi if you remember Philippi was settled with a lot of veterans from the war that really birthed Caesar Augustus. Uh, And so you've got this kind of rich, I think we talked about it being like San Diego. You've you've got this rich culture of people that come uh, from this Roman background that, that fought in wars, that have that heritage. And Paul is telling these people, these citizens, stand firm in Christ. Stand firm this way. Don't let anybody push you back. Don't let anybody move you. Stand united, stand uh, stand together. You have the right foundation for this. And then he does this interesting kind of bridge before he gets to his exhortations or his encouragement or the motivational part of what he's trying to say to the the church at Philippi. He gets this little bridge and, and he says this, Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Sintish to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. It's a really odd thing. There's two women that are fighting. We don't know much about them. We don't know much about the fight other than the way Paul talks about it. it's really interesting. If it had been a, a heresy or a doctrinal issue, Paul, as his habit would have been, would have called it out and asked the church to correct it. If it had been a moral failing, Paul would have called it out and said to the church that that you need to apply pressure to this person till they repent and are able to be restored into this fellowship. But but rather he He talks just lovingly about these two women that somehow are prominent women in this community and are, if they continue, going to be a cause of division so that there won't be unity in this church. There's there's some kind of a disagreement that they're not working out. And because they're prominent, you're probably going to get sides or two different um, angles on a story beginning to go throughout this congregation. And Paul says, "Um, come alongside these people. And help them be united. Uh, even possibly bringing in a third person that's referenced here as, as a neutral third party mediator. But Paul is saying stand firm as a church. There are enemies of the cross of Christ. Stand firm. I plead with you to stand firm. And oh, by the way, these two wonderful women whose names are in the book of life, who, who I've fought alongside with or ministered alongside with, you got to get them on the same page again. you got to come alongside these people and have unity because if the church is divided, it'll never be able to stand and and never will you actually manifest the the joy of the Lord, the oneness of the Lord that you as a church should. So you've got to deal with this disunity, this division. You know, what's really interesting to me about this is... um, Paul also names Peter elsewhere. He names Peter as uh, I think it's in Galatians that when when Paul had had been around Peter and Peter had been challenged by some of these legalistic people that he was eating meals with Gentiles who hadn't undergone the rites to become uh, the, the ceremonial rites of passage to become a full-fledged Israelite or, or Jewish convert. They were Gentile believers, and Paul's eating with them, and so these legalistic people were putting pressure, and Paul had slowly kind of tried to pull away just to kind of maybe make things a little easier for himself, and and um, uh, and so as Peter had done this, I'm sorry, Paul comes along and says, Peter, you're in the wrong. Like you're actually. As an apostle who's supposed to be leading people to unity, you're actually being used as a tool to cause division and to cause all these false ideas to continue to be uh, perpetuated within this community. You should know that we're saved by grace through faith and that these Gentile converts are welcomed into the family. Who is the first person that was a part of, of seeing the Holy Spirit descend on Gentile converts? Do you guys remember in the New Testament book of Acts? The very first person to see the Holy Spirit descend on Gentiles and, and symbolically baptizing them that, that these people are now in the new covenant, this new covenant community, it was Peter. When he had the vision to go to, 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 go to the Roman Cornelius' house and they had sent for him and he goes and he, he ministers and the household of Cornelius becomes saved. Peter should have known better. And so this fascinating passage where Paul comes and says, Peter, you should have known better. Of all people, of all people, you should have known better. Um, And so here's my take on that passage. My take on that passage has always been, it really sucks when you make a mistake. Uh, It really sucks when you make a mistake and people know about it. It extra super super sucks when you make a mistake people know about it and Paul writes it into scripture for all Christians of all time to see. You know how many people are going to get into heaven and, and Peter's going to be at the, at the gates and they're going to come up and Peter's you know, going to introduce himself and, and check for their name in the book of life and they're going to go, dude, Peter, What was up with that whole thing where, like, you wouldn't eat with the Gentiles and all that? That was pretty wrong. Like, what was wrong with you? Like, and Peter's going to be like, yeah, I've heard it before. Shut up. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's crazy. If if Paul was one of my friends, there's a very good chance that I would have ended up in the New Testament. And don't laugh because I'm writing a book. And uh, there's a very good chance I'll put you in there. Um, see how you like that. Uh, these two women, they couldn't get their act together. They couldn't handle their disagreement. And you know what? Their names get put in the New Testament forever and ever. And I think if, if they were standing here, they would look at that and say, Wow, was that silly. We, 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 we could have owned our own side of whatever the argument is. You know that, that's, you know that's the, the way you resolve any argument with someone who's willing to listen. If you have someone who's not willing to engage the conversation with you, there's very little you can do. I have, I have relationships like that and I grieve them. But with someone who's willing to listen, here's how you resolve a conflict you know what, I'm sorry. Even if you know that the, the argument is because they're 99% wrong, okay, what you do is you go into it and you say, you know what, I'm sorry. I could have done this better. When, when I heard that or when it came to me, my reaction wasn't right. Like It, it wasn't right. I wish I could get that over again. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I got mad and I went and talked about you to these people. You know what? Instead of coming to you, I realized that was wrong. I'm sorry. There's very few disagreements that won't immediately just the, the not slip out when one of the two parties is willing to start with not what the other person did wrong, but with what they know they could have done better Admitting that, asking for forgiveness, and frankly, what usually happens is the other person will immediately say, no, 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 I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that in the first place, or my attitude, or my, I said it with a tone, or, or whatever it might be, and, and then all of a sudden it resolves. And I guarantee you, these two women could have resolved their thing. And I, I think if they were looking at it today, they would have would have much rather had they resolved it themselves than than to join Peter as the other people that got called out in the New Testament for everyone to see forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And ever. Um, so as a church at Antioch, I think if Paul as a father, as a church planter, as someone who sees his success and his joy as being tied up with the health. Not the size, but the health of a church. What disagreements are you holding on to? What stuff are you telling people that you shouldn't be telling them? Who should you go to and say, "Um, you know what? I might be wrong, but I'm pretty frustrated with you about these things and I need to get your side of that story. Like, before I harbor all these feelings like I need to actually be willing to talk to you about it and then all of a sudden when you hear their side of the story you go wow that sure does look a lot different feel a lot different than it looked like in my mind and my wife is fond of saying if all were known all would be forgiven meaning it's not that we brush sin or wrongs under the the carpet it's that the thing that you are doing to me that I would never do to you is, is, uh, is a lot easier for me to understand when I put myself in your shoes and realize that your upbringing was different than mine. The stresses in your life are different than mine. The bad news you got from the doctor last week is different than the news I got. Um, that your perceptions or the data you were working off of certainly means that 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 that's an easy to understand response. Um, I wouldn't do to you the thing you do to me, but I have plenty of things I'll do to you that you probably wouldn't do to me. And if we understand each other, it doesn't it doesn't excuse the wrong, but it allows us to understand it and say, you know what, I can forgive it. It's not unforgivable. It's actually forgivable. And maybe that's okay if we just learn to live in grace and accept, accept each other's shortcomings. But Paul is wanting the health of the church more than anything else. When I was gonna be a church planter for a decade, I, I prayed about planting a church before we started. And the size of the church was, was a part of that. Most church planters, they, they picture they have a vision of what they're gonna do and, and maybe what that's gonna accomplish. But the funny thing was, was when Antioch started, I had come out of a season of being a part of some real dysfunction at a church, And all I wanted was peace. And after a while, there was peace at Antioch, and it was healthy, and, and relationships were, were nurturing. people were being encouraged and encouraging each other. And, and it was so good. And so it kind of flipped my thinking, and I was like, you know what? Maybe that's the whole goal here, is it's not about the size. It's about the health of the thing. And so I like to brag about Antioch. We've had some bumps along along the way, but it's one of the most drama-free churches I've ever heard of. And to me, that's significant. We do a good job of that. Let's continue to do a good job of that. If you have somebody that you're harboring ill thoughts toward, Or if you're finding yourself gossip about them, if you're gossiping about them, it means there's something in you alive enough that you got to go deal with with that person themselves. So let's do it. Let's let's do it before Paul shows up and says he's going to write us into a book, and then we'll never be able to undo it. So Paul begins by asking these two women to resolve it and, and inviting the church to say, don't split into factions actually use this opportunity as you pursue it to build deeper strength, right? Um, there's a strength that comes from going through fights and solving them well that, that's better than the strength that you have in a relationship if you've never gone through a trial. Does that make sense? Early on in, in Antioch, the life of Antioch, I used to say that there would never be an elder at Antioch that I hadn't gotten into a fight with first. You want to know why that is? Do you see someone's character when all you do is get together for golf and have a good time? Or do you see their character when you really end up coming to blows and then watch how they resolve that over time? You see their character and how they handle the conflict. And when you see that character, now you can trust that character. And character really matters for leadership. Paul moves on and he says this, Bring these women together, now rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Greek word here is a very unique one, and it's really a, a selflessness. It's a, it's a not thinking of oneself, but really having another's focus. So this, this very soft, I really care about you, not about myself, that soft gentleness, let it be evident to all, for the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So there's something really interesting here. You're you're gonna rejoice, but there's gonna be things that, that test that circumstances that test that and you're going to find that you're going to have this growing fear or anxiety as circumstances or as the clouds kind of brew or the storms the waves pick up there's going to be things that happen in life that are hard and difficult And instead of being able to rejoice, the temptation is going to uh, be to have anxiety. Anxiety, you know it more by just the feeling of it, don't you? It's got this, this subtle fear or paranoia to it, and it revs your engine up. And you can't really sit down or sink into a chair and grab your Bible or a book and just take a deep breath and get your cup of tea and be at peace and enjoy Fellowship with the Lord or fellowship with, with someone else, you, you've got this anxiety and you're trying to manipulate or, or trying to twist. Like, I need this person to do that for me because if, if that doesn't happen, this might happen. And, and so all of life begins to be about control because you're panicked and you're sinking. And what do sinking or drowning victims do? They flail. They flail. And so anxiety means that you're, you're flailing and you're not loving in a gentle way community. You're really seeing people as a means to an end or abusing them as you're trying to resolve this, this destabilization that's inside of you. Or when you come to God out of the, that anxiety, you're flailing, God, it has to be fixed or I can't rejoice. And, and Paul says, So out of your anxiety, you come, you turn to God and say, all of this stuff that's going on in me, God, I give it to you. And you know what? I'm going to remember, I'm going to engage this discipline of remembrance that there are things in my life that are good. And even if there's nothing in my life that's good, I can still remember that you are good. And that you've been there in the past for me. And that you do have the power and you do care. But somehow I'm going to reach back and give thanks to you so that I can slowly stabilize myself and anchor myself in you. And in that, Paul is promising the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind. Your anxious feelings And your manipulative or or panic-driven, fear-based thoughts. That your heart and your head are going to somehow be grounded into God, even if the circumstances don't change. That that it's this discipline of taking yourself to God, allowing peace to replace anxiety. I actually think that all of Scripture, if you want, can be put underneath that bucket that broken and estranged relationship from God, fear and anxiety and the junk that comes with that, seeking to find resolution and be reconciled with God and that even if circumstances don't change, there's still the fortitude or, or the, the intimacy with God to know peace and joy despite circumstances. That all of scripture can be said to be the, the move from, from this feeling or emotion or position in life to experiencing God's blessings, or all of Scripture can be said to uh, contain God talking into life and to say, here's how you would experience my blessings because the posture that you take really matters. Does that make sense? So Paul continues, and he says the same theme just a different way. He says, finally, brothers, sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, the word here is dikaiosune, it's also just. He's talking about whatever is right in terms of a a, a just relationship with other people or society. Whatever is right or just, whatever is pure, holy, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, the word excellent there is arete, which is the Greek concept for moral virtue. It's moral excellence. It's, it's bringing about such excellence in your person that you have a, a strong character. And the Greeks praised that kind of thing. And so this is that, that wonderful Greek word arete, or whatever is praiseworthy. Think about such things. There's two words here that Paul picks up that are not used anywhere else in the New Testament. Many would argue that Paul is borrowing from moral philosophers or the Zig of his day or, or whatever it might be and taking formulas of, of characteristics or virtues that people know they should be doing that are a part of the culture in Philippi. Um, whether he's doing that or not, he's certainly bringing in this robust thing that says pattern yourself For goodness, pattern yourself for health. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. So pattern yourself for health in your relationship with other people, in society, your character. When you look at me, you're going to see some of these virtues. Take that and put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. We think that the blessing of God is something that just happens. It's like a great golf shot. Ah, oh, look at that. That guy took out a nine iron and he dropped it like two feet from the pin. It's so not fair. He's so blessed. Or she. She's so blessed. Ah, oh, wish I could do that. You know, if it would just happen to me. And And there's no real understanding that it's... There's a lot of complex factors going on with that person's golf swing to get that ball to drop a couple feet from the pin. And there was a lot of time and a lot of energy building up muscle memory and thinking things through and making changes to a golf swing based on, on kind of observation to kind of slowly put into practice the right kind of pattern that would, that would lead to the right kind of result, the desired result. Does that make sense? We understand this with piano. We don't look at someone that plays piano and go, I wish that would fall out of heaven and happen to me tonight. We look at someone playing piano and we're like, yeah, they're good, but I didn't want to spend those 10,000 hours. You know what I'm talking about? I think we understand with piano maybe a little bit better that there was a cost to that, to to be able to play as well as they play. Well, here's the, the big confusion in the Christian church. Because we talk about the freeness of grace, grace is free. We don't earn it. Grace meaning the forgiveness that God gives us, that our sins are forgiven so that we can be adopted into the family of God and be sons and daughters of God. That we talk about how free that process is all the time that we we don't really know how to talk about the subsequent part, which is how do you experience the blessing of God? And... The blessing of God is a lot like my kids. They didn't do anything to be born into my family. And there are a lot of of opportunities made available to my kids because they're a part of my family. I love them. That's not going to change. There's certain privileges that they're going to get. Having the the coolest dad in in town is one of them. Um, There's others. Uh, But they have access to certain blessings just by virtue of being in that family then there's this whole other category of blessings, right? Right? That if they don't engage certain behaviors, they're not going to gain access to. When I say to them, if you do these things, you will get this, and they don't do those things, then they don't get that blessing. If I say to them, I'll get behind you learning an instrument, and I'll pay for it, and I'll sacrifice for it, but if you don't put in the time you're not going to go anywhere. If they don't put in the time, guess what? They don't go anywhere. There there are a whole lot of blessings that they have to pattern themselves in a certain way in order to get the result that we look at and say, that's a blessing of God or a blessing from that family. And when we are Christians, what Paul is saying is, listen, when you pattern yourself a certain way, Pursue unity, have a spirit of thanksgiving, take the circumstances, give them to God, anchor yourself there. Then God's peace will guard you. And it's going to be an amazing thing. It's going to literally surpass your ability to understand it. It's going to be amazing. And not only that, but the inputs in your life and how you pattern yourself and and how you're going to choose to behave or orient yourself with regard to society with regard to your decisions, how you spend your time, your relationships, what you allow to happen in your presence, all of those things. When you're patterning yourself that way for moral excellence, okay, do that, and here's a really cool thing. As you're doing that, you're going to get the peace of God. God's peace is going to come upon you. Now, the word peace here... Uh, the, the, the Greek word in the Septuagint, remember the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So why we talk about it as pastors is something really interesting happens is you can see which words in Greek correlated to Hebrew words most closely because you can see which ones the Greek translators chose to speak for Hebrew words in the Old Testament. And the Greek word that the Septuagint used for shalom The Hebrew word shalom is this uh, arene, peace, Greek word for peace. Now the Hebrew word shalom goes so much further. So what they were wanting this Greek word for peace to have in it was this sense of of flourishing, wholeness, goodness. When a, a watered garden is coming about, just think of a greenhouse, when that ecosystem is as it should be, it flourishes and so, what, what Paul is saying to these people that he considers literally like family, that, in tears, is coming to them. He's saying, out of the brokenness of this world and the anxiety and the fear and the control and all of that that's going on and the manipulation, out of that, you can come into this position of flourishing and fullness and know God despite your circumstances. And here's how you do it. You're, you're gonna pattern yourself. It's not gonna fall out of the sky. You Don't look at other people and go, man, pff, their life is blessed. It's not fair. It actually is fair. If it's a blessing from God, it's something that they've probably earned and God has delighted in giving, giving, uh, giving that to them. And if you yourself would follow the things that God has asked you to do to receive blessing, you too, over time, would receive blessing. But I find that most people that come to me or or certainly younger people or newer to the faith, here's the way we think of God's blessing. Man, if, if God would just tell me something, I'd do it. If God would just tell me something right now to get his blessing, I would so do it. Well, but hasn't he told you like a hundred things already through scripture or like your conscience or things you've told me in the past that you felt like God was asking you to do but you didn't really want to do? Hasn't he told you like a hundred things already and you're not doing any of them? Yeah, I know. But if he told me something right now to get his blessing, I'd do it. Which is the same as saying, if God would give me something easy, something that I would agree to and something that would bring an immediate blessing, I'd so be into that. That's like saying, um, if you told me right now which numbers to pick for the lottery, I would so go do that. Can't you see the moral virtue in me? Can't you see that I'm, I'm willing to play ball here? That I'm on board with the whole system? God, if you just tell me the numbers to make it all about me, forgetting everything you've asked me to do, I I would so be into you blessing me right this second undeservedly. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, God has told you and he's told me, and we know it. In our belly, we know it. What we should be doing already that we're not doing. And, and when we want to go, how come God isn't blessing me? We need to start there and go, you know what? It's because I'm not patterning my life in a way that he can bless. Um, the other thing about God's blessings is they come slowly over time. So there's a chapter in my book that I, I use this phrase, blessing come late. When you really watch someone who's been walking with the Lord over a long period of time, The blessings slowly emerge and flourish as a garden, right? Slowly over time as they continue to put their faith in God and trust him. I want to just read this section and then we'll close with that. Um, What it means is that God is more patient than I am in some areas. For example, how perfect I think my life should be right now. And more earnest than I in other areas. For example, how important it is for me to pursue justice and compassion For the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant. The leadership examples we see in the Old Testament seem to show that God is not always in a hurry to bring his children into their calling. Earlier in this book, we looked at the account of Abraham and Isaac. The name Isaac means he laughs, which has both a positive and a negative connotation. In the negative, Abraham's wife, Sarah, laughed a bit sarcastically when she overheard God's messengers telling Abraham that they would have a son. She didn't believe the promise But in Genesis 21, 6, she gave another reason for naming him Isaac. God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. The laughter that began as a scoff of disbelief became a joyful celebration. But it was not until many years down the road that that blessing was fully realized. After Moses received his calling to lead the children of Israel, he was forced to flee from Egypt to the country of Midian, where he tended sheep for decades. He was in the desert so long that he despaired of receiving God's blessing on the calling that he had received many years earlier. And when God finally appeared in a burning bush to call Moses into leadership in Exodus 3, Moses no longer wanted the calling. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Verse 11. God's blessing outlasted Moses' desire to be blessed. The prophet Samuel anointed David as king when he was only a boy, but he had to live as a public enemy for years, running for his life. It was after years of hiding out in caves, eating whatever he and his men could scrape together, and being isolated from the people he loved that God saw fit to bring him to the throne. The blessing of God often looks different than we think it ought to look, and it may be on a very different timetable. For one thing, it is often a spiritual blessing more than a material one. Second, as with David, Moses, and Abraham, there is a place in time when the blessing is announced, but the ramifications of that blessing evolve across a lifetime. We tend to deeply inquire and ask God, God, will you bless me? That being so, I think it is interesting that the first words in the Psalms are, blessed is the one. The answer to how God could or might bless us is less of a secret than we think. It also turns out to be a bit more of a process than we would wish. Nothing expresses God's system and pattern of blessing more concisely and vividly than the entirety of that first psalm. Here's what it says. Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water. Which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. In this psalm, agriculture is used as a metaphor for a flourishing person. Imagine how an agrarian people, well acquainted with crops and with the seasons of tilling, planting, tending, and harvesting, would hear the words of Psalm 1. They would have a very specific picture of a life that yields its fruit in season. In this industrial age in which we can obtain strawberries from the market during any month of the year, we have a, and I don't know if that's true, but certainly in the frozen section, um, I was reading it and I was wondering if that's even right. Anyways, in this industrial age in which we can obtain strawberries from the market during any month of the year, we have a mindset of immediacy. We often don't think of the seasonal cycle of agriculture, of wisdom through age or maturity through growth when we hear the word blessing we are likely to anticipate immediate results and Paul in his tears brothers and sisters encourages us to do the, the deep work of unity the deep the deep work of taking our stress and anxiety to God who alone can alleviate that tension and to do the deep work of character building and moral formation that we might put into practice and pattern the right kind of life that God can bless with the kind of flourishing that we all desire. Father, all we have is yours. Let us be surrendered uh, surrendered and yielded to you. Father, find us obedient and if If we are wayward, break us now before our names show up in the wrong book, in the wrong way, bring us back to you, back to a position of health, and we pray that in Jesus' name.